Hey everybody, welcome back. Another episode of the Disciple Types podcast. My name is Dave and this is my brother Andrew. Hey everybody. Today we have a very special episode because we'll be discussing the Apostle Philip, which Andrew is your disciple type, right? That's right, I'm a Philip. And Philip is the philosopher, correct? Yes, Philip the philosopher. And I'm really excited to talk about this type, not because I really like talking about myself, I don't really like that, um, but because learning about Philip was really my original pathway into actually understanding all of the different disciples' personalities. Interesting. Tell us more about that. Why was it that Philip was so integral to your understanding of the disciple types? Well, Philip is one of those forgotten disciples. He's sort of mysterious. He's mostly unknown. He's sort of nondescript. So before I started to research each disciple, I really didn't know anything about Philip. Yeah, me neither. I, I bet a lot of our listeners are in the same boat. Exactly. There's very little information about him in the New Testament. So when I was doing my research, I had to basically ask a couple of questions about Philip's representation in the Gospels. So one of those questions was, why is he mentioned so infrequently? And the other question was, what do the details that we are given tell us about Philip, if anything? So it was really it was really fascinating to start taking these little story snippets about Philip, and they're almost entirely from the Gospel of John, and weaving them together into this coherent picture of who, of who this guy is. And based on my research, the answer to that first question is that Philip was mentioned so infrequently because he's simply not as significant to the Gospel story as some of the other disciples are. Mm, that's a pretty radical conclusion. Uh, yeah, and it's not a knock on him. But basically, so let me explain. He wasn't part of the inner circle like Peter, John, and Andrew were. He didn't write a gospel like Matthew. Uh, he didn't have this dramatic story like Thomas did. He's just Philip. He, he wasn't that close to Jesus, and he didn't dramatically alter the course of events as far as we can tell. And like I said, that's not a knock on Philip. That's just a picture that is painted by his story. And here's the thing. He was still called by Jesus to be a founding disciple. So that brings us to the other question. What was included in the Gospels about Philip, and what does that tell us about him? And it basically tells us that Philip was an early believer, but he had difficulty relying on faith and letting his guard down to know people on a more personal level. So for me, as a Christian who grew up in the church, but I never really felt like I belonged— I really connected with Philip's outsider skeptic status. So it was the fact that there was so little information about Philip that actually told you so much about him. Exactly. Philip flew under the radar. He wasn't flashy. He distanced himself from the spotlight. And I really identify with that. Uh, and I didn't really identify with any of the other disciples until I, until I realized this about Philip. So that was really my entry point to all of the other disciples, I realized that everyone has a place at the Lord's Supper table, even me. And because I finally understood how someone could feel like I do, act like I do, think like I do, but still be considered a, a bona fide founding member of the disciples and still be called by God for a purpose. And maybe that purpose doesn't look like the stereotype of what a Christian calling should look like. But that's still the call. So what might that calling look like? Do we know anything more about Philip, like examples from the Gospels? Sure. Uh, so when we first meet Philip in John chapter 1, uh, it's talking about Jesus. It says, finding Philip, Jesus said to him, follow me. 
And I find that really interesting because Philip is the first disciple that we know about who is called, who had no known personal connection to an existing disciple. So he's not like Peter or James, who, whose brothers Andrew and John introduced them to Jesus. Jesus just calls Philip specifically and intentionally out of nowhere with no obvious reason why. As if Philip never would have met or been introduced to Jesus if Jesus didn't make that first move. Then it says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So immediately Philip goes and tells somebody. He evangelizes Nathanael, making Philip one of the first evangelists after Andrew, who was the first. But he does it differently than Andrew. Whereas Andrew, when he calls Peter to meet Jesus, he calls Jesus the Messiah, which is a very loaded theological and political term at the time. But Philip doesn't draw any firm conclusions about Jesus. He just says it's the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. So we see he's very cautious. He's precise in his language. And that's, that shows us how much Philip cares about accuracy. And it's a strong indication that he relies on reason primarily to guide him. Yeah. So, Drew, you mentioned how there's so little information about Philip. Are you able to draw that big of a conclusion from that one line of dialogue? That's a good question, and, and yes and no. That intro to Philip is one piece of data that we need to corroborate against other parts of his story. So the next time we hear about Philip, he's being asked by Jesus how they're going to feed the multitude of the 5,000. Yeah. And poor Philip is a logical problem solver. Right. And he knows it's impossible to feed all those people. Right. It's just impossible. So he gives sort of a flippant, quick math calculation saying it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each person to have a bite. And so he's basically saying it's impossible. You're nuts. There's so many people. It's like not even worth thinking about. Right. But the whole time Jesus was only asking Philip to test him. And that's what it says in, in the gospel. It says he's only asking him to test him. Right. And of course he fails because reason can't make sense of miracles. Right. Or anticipate them. Exactly. And so meanwhile, Andrew has been mingling with the crowd and he finds this boy with the loaves and fish and he's not sure how that will feed everyone, but he, he brings the boy to Jesus anyway says, I don't know, you know, what good it'll do, but here he is. Right. He's networking. Exactly. Yeah. Like we talked in, in, the, in the last episode, Andrew's always mingling and networking, right? And so there's a real contrast there between Philip and Andrew. Andrew is connecting people. He's staying open to the impossible. And Philip is sort of closed off to all that. Anything he can't explain rationally, he's just not interested in exploring. Yeah, that's pretty convincing for the type you're explaining. Because, I mean, who would say to Jesus' face, are you crazy? Come on. It's almost sarcastic. It's, it's very sarcastic because he's exaggerating. Even if we had a year's wages, we couldn't do that. And it's basically saying, don't, don't bother me with such a ridiculous question. Right. right. <laughs> Imagine saying that to Jesus. Right. To God. To God. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's pretty great. So in our last episode, we did, we talked about Andrew and how, how Andrew interacts with Philip a couple of times. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. 
So Philip and Andrew are very different. They're they're all basically exact opposites. So where Philip is primarily reason and he backs that up with experience, Andrew is primarily revelation, which is the opposite of reason, the counterpart of reason, and he backs that up with tradition. So they're really exact opposites in that way. But even so, they always seem to be intersecting with each other. And sometimes that shows a contrast, like the feeding of the 5,000, and sometimes they complement each other. So at the feeding of the 5,000, Andrew sort of shows Philip up. But the next time they interact, they're actually working together. And so that's when uh, Philip apparently, he had a very good relationship with the Greeks in Jerusalem. And that may be because he had a Greek name and he spoke Greek. But if you know anything about the Greeks, like anything, you know that they were really big on philosophy. Uh, and so there, there were all these different schools of philosophy that thought about asking the big questions about life and existence and purpose and meaning and using rigorous logic and reason to challenge each other to debate and to come up with uh, uh, better answers about life. So for the Greeks to even be curious about Jesus, a teacher from a non-Greek religion, the faith would have to be presented as an intellectually coherent philosophy. Otherwise, they have no time for it. And so I think that really speaks to Philip's greatest strength and really what his calling is. And, and so I identify as a skeptic myself. Philip was ideally suited to explain Jesus to a group of intellectuals right. who weren't otherwise inclined to take things on faith alone. Right. So the evidence does seem pretty clear to me that Philip's primary aspect was reason. You mentioned that his secondary aspect was experience. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So this is where we have to infer a little bit more from the information we're given. And one of the first clues is Philip's response to Nathaniel when Nathaniel balks at Philip introducing him to Jesus. And if you remember, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? I love these two guys. They have these like really sarcastic responses. And Philip just says, come and see. So that's a clear indication of Philip's approach to life. He's not going to try and convince Nathaniel that his prejudices are wrong. He knows, Philip knows that firsthand experience is the best teacher. And we see how experience influences Philip's approach to reason itself. Philosophy is about using inductive reasoning as opposed to deductive reasoning to explore those big questions in life. So explain those terms a little bit more for us. Sure. Deductive reasoning is what we usually think of as logic. You go from what you know, what you know is true, to prove something else that must be true based on the first thing you knew. So there's a classic example in philosophy. Socrates is a man. All men are mortal. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. So you know the first two things are true. So deductively, the third thing must be true. You're taking what you know and you're narrowing it down, deducting, mm -hmm. until you're left with something else that must be true. Right. But inductive reasoning isn't about proving what must be true. It's about exploring what might be true. So you take your experiences, you take all this information, and you go from specific experiences to general principles. Right. All the while, logic still eliminates the things that cannot be true, that you definitely know are not true. But you're not narrowing your scope like you are with deductive reasoning. You're actually expanding it to explore the possibilities. 
to get at the bigger picture, the larger mystery. And that's what we see Philip do. Do you have any examples of, of him exercising this, this trait? We really only get one good example of it in the Gospels, and it's during the Last Supper. Jesus is talking about his disciples really knowing him, and Philip totally misses the point characteristically of Philip. Uh, when Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. To that, Jesus said, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? And so Jesus is basically flat out telling Philip and the rest of the disciples that having a relationship with Jesus is the whole point of existence. And Philip is like, yeah, yeah, that's great. But show us the real mysteries of the universe. Show us the Father. That's all I really care about. And Jesus' response is just brutal. Have we been together this long and you still don't even know me? And, and honestly, that just rips me up. Like, because that's me. I intellectualize, I rationalize, I abstract things to death. But do I actually really make connections with people, let alone God? So left to my own devices, my relationships can be kind of utilitarian. Um, if somebody interests me, challenges me, I'll enjoy talking with them. But I don't easily let my guard down or get personal. You know, I've my best friends... I talk to like three times a year and I still consider them my best friends. And, and they, they just understand that about me, that I'm just not that uh, person that's always being in touch. But I know that there's limitations to that. And we, and we see that with Philip too. You know, he's, he's having this great debate with the Greeks. He's persuading them intellectually. I can just imagine them having these grand discussions. But when it comes to, down to the time that the Greeks actually want to meet Jesus, Philip is timid. Uh, he's one of Jesus' disciples. He should be able to just be that connection right to Jesus. But we see that he needs Andrew to be the go-between between himself and Jesus to really connect people and bring them to Jesus. And it's, it's just fascinating to me why he would be having this discussion with the Greeks. They say they want to meet Jesus, and Philip he balks at it. He doesn't just take them right to Jesus. He needs he needs Andrew to help him do that. So that's a pretty powerful image you're sharing, Andrew. It couldn't have been easy to come to that realization. It's a very personal realization. Right, exactly. So I I have these, you know, moments of quiet contemplation where where I have the feelings, so they, these realizations. Um, but when I externalize them, they become filtered through that reason and experience. Um, and I, I think that's a great example of what I'm talking about, why there's that that sort of barrier. But that's all part of the growth. So I realized, getting back to Philip, I realized Jesus wasn't just talking to Philip. He was also talking to me. And that's what really sent me on this journey of trying to understand other people through the disciple types. I all of a sudden understood this mysterious guy, this this Philip, and through that, he taught me something about myself. And that was really eye-opening for me 
And I wanted to be able to share that with other people who maybe didn't see themselves in the disciples all that much. Yeah. And to do that, I have to use my gifts, uh, my, my inductive reasoning, my, my tendency to intellectualize everything. Uh, but use those gifts not just for skepticism or cynicism, which is so easy for me to fall into, but use it towards God's ends. And, and so it, it had to be okay that I'm not like Andrew, who makes relationships easily with everybody. Yeah, I'm the guy that other skeptics can turn to who say, well, if he believes this and it's not totally wacky, then it must make some sense. And then I have permission to at least ask the questions and say, it, it's, it, I'm not stupid for, for thinking this because this guy who I don't think just falls for anything thinks there's merit to it. I, I like to be that person that other people can say, well, if he, if he thinks it and he, you know, he only says what he believes and what, what he's, he's thought through. And I try to be that. And I hope that, that, that that's true. But I have to recognize that I also need Andrews in my life, just like Philip couldn't just intellectualize and debate his way to bringing other people to Jesus. He needed Andrew. He needed him there to be that connection point. And I need to find ways to make those connections. And people who are like Andrew, who I do surround myself with as much as, I, as possible, uh, they do help me. And, and that's, that's so important to me because – it's through our human connections that we're ultimately – that's how we train ourselves to have a relationship with Christ. And that's really something that I hope our listeners can take away from not only this episode but also our future episodes. And what is our next episode? Uh, next time, I believe we're going to be focusing on Thomas. Excellent. Well, that's all we have for this episode. Please like and subscribe, and if you have taken the quiz, please share your results. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell somebody about it. I'm Dave. And I'm Andrew. And we hope you'll join us next time on the Disciple Types Podcast.